This is the Mentor Shift Podcast, coming out every second Thursday with Mickey Fahair. Welcome to Mentor Shift, man. This is Mickey Fahair, your host. Today's show is brought to you by Mindset Maps International. Mindset Maps International has developed, based on 20 years of research, an amazing tool called a Mindset Map Tool. If you go to www.mindset-maps.com, you can also take the Success Mindset Maps Inventory, which allows you to map out your current mindset in relationship to a specific business goal or life goal that you have right now in focus and compares it to that of very successful purpose-driven entrepreneurs such as Anita Roddick who founded Body Shop or you know Steve Jobs or Mohammed Yunus who was an amazing entrepreneur is an amazing entrepreneur in India and started uh, the microcredit uh, business there so it's a great opportunity um, because we take you know mindset for granted we think that if we have a goal we have the right mindset for it but many times don't we realize wow you know if only my my mindset would have been a little different i would have done it so i encourage you to try the mindset maps tools um, and it's again at www mindset-maps.com also if you like our show if you like what we're doing please give us a good rating give us a review and also subscribe on your uh, favorite podcast platform to mentorship so that you can always hear firsthand very quickly you don't have to do anything Join me in welcoming Robbie Stenhouse, one of Britain's leading NLP trainers and coaches. He delivers his training in the NLP school in London, but he's also a member of the NLP University uh, faculty in California and teaches around the world. Starting in the 1980s, Robbie built a large business in recruitment, property and insurance, which he grew and then managed to sell. Uh, He's also um, an author. He has written several books, um, Think Like an Entrepreneur, Brilliant Decision Making, um, and recently, uh, Mindful Business Leadership in 2017. I think he's a fascinating man. He brings um, the perspective of a business person and that of a coach, which is uh, an unusual and unique combination. And I invited him to talk about his views on making money, on finding vision and mission, masculinity, femininity, and the idea of climbing several mountains in a life. With the idea that the first mountain is more about our ego and finding ourselves and proving something and making some money and some foundations and it's often more ego driven whereas the second or third mountain could be something that's more about purpose um, mission and wanting to make the world a better place 
Hello, Robbie. It's been a while. It has been a while. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. And, um, you know, it's it's really fantastic to have you. Uh, I've been thinking uh, a lot about, you know, during these days, you know, about, you know, what kind of leadership and especially self-leadership we need to, to persevere through this period of time. And, you know, the, the other thought that I had is, is, is recently I have a lot of clients that come to me and interestingly, a lot of them are men, uh, sort of middle age. Um, and they're like, well, you know, the, the pandemic gave me um, sort of a break and I started thinking and I'm wondering, you know, what's my second mountain in this life? And, and so I, I thought of you because, you know, you teach leadership and, and you had sort of a, at least two mountains in your, in your life. So, so happy to have you. And um, why don't we kind of just um, dive in a little bit and um, could you share a little bit your story? So what did you do and where okay. are you now? So um, I'll try and not tell me to speed up or move forward, but I mean, basically in my 20s, I, I graduated um, from university when I was 23 um, and I was lucky to have access at that time to computers. They just came out, I'm almost 60 now. So when I graduated in the early 80s, the microcomputer had just effectively come into its own. Um, so when I started my own business, which I did a bit later on, I, I was lucky to, to be in that sort of first wave of entrepreneurs who had programming skills, understood you know more about that kind of computing. A bit like, I think it would be, possibly deluded to say that I was like Bill Gates. I mean, you know, but Malcolm Gladwell made that point in his book that, you know, that they were born, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and so forth on a certain time in the 1950s. I was born, say, I don't know, say six years later. But that meant that six years later, I suddenly found myself in that sort of new area. So I could set up a business on my own completely, you know, someone else competing with me at that time would have needed 15 staff. I could do everything on my own. And that gave me like an edge for a number of years. I also was lucky to study um, and go uh, have a job as a salesman at NCR, National Cash Register. It's the American company is now owned by AT&T. So I also had all that sales training. So I was early in the whole marketing thing of sending out mail shots. So while now, you know, social media people have splurged with all sorts of stuff, you know, I was an early kind of early started doing this with databases and sending letters. So and I had an amazing results with those when I first started. So I was very lucky. I think that's that's it. So that sort of propelled me. Mm-hmm. I felt I was like 10 years ahead of my competitors. So because most of your competitors wouldn't be familiar with computers at this point and, and you, exactly right yeah 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 i mean so for example i remember i bought a database in uh, like 1989 or something like that and i sent out a mail shot to i think to a thousand companies and that gave me enough deal flow for like 10 years wow. you know no one had ever written that database and you and, and before Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, it, it was it, that's what I mean. I was sort of lucky in a way. I was in a niche uh, real estate market. And then that led from one thing to another. I learned about insurance and from insurance, I set up an insurance broker. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of, the thing kind of mushroomed. 
Right, right. So that's that that that's it. And then I sort of did that for about ten years until fifteen years until, you know, I had a fairly big business. I was stressed. I learned Tai Chi. My Tai Chi trainer had gone to NLPU and had studied with Robert and Judy and so forth. Um, he suggested NLP, which I thought was ridiculous when he talked to me about it, but clearly I've become a convert since. Um, and then, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can keep going, but that's sort of a maybe, maybe, you know, we just want to explain to people what NLP is because not, maybe not everyone knows. Do, do you want to? Sure. Yeah. So NLP being neuro-linguistic programming, a, a sort of form of psychology that came out of a university in California in the 1970s, made, I think, probably famous, particularly by Anthony Robbins. Tony Robbins, in some sense, is a, a, uh, an interesting character. Um, has some element of controversy because of, of the way that he has such a huge business, but it's taking these sort of kind of key philosophical principles and, and they, I think, are often embedded in lots of leadership and sales training now. Right. Also as a form of therapy and a form of coaching and so forth. So, you know, I, I just want to ask you, um, you probably have a lot of friends who are in business. I have a lot of friends who are in business and we often talk and... Um, You know, when we talk about stuff like NLP, you know, they often kind of go, well, you know, I'm a businessman. Um, you know, I, I got, you know, my real estate business or, you know, I'm a lawyer um, or I'm a banker. You know, this sounds very far from my area of interest. Like, why would someone who's running a business, you know, has, you know, three kids lives in the suburbs, you know, fairly successful, has done really well, has a good circle of friends. So why would someone, why would someone want to go into NLP or, 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 you know, learn anything like that? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, coaching and therapy are interesting because yeah. people often are ashamed to take therapy, but coaching seems like, you know, more kind of forward thinking, although yeah. it's often kind of way of hiding therapy I, I, but there was there was a student a business student who came on to a talk I gave the other day and she said look I had a happy family background I didn't come from some difficult problem but I still had all sorts of limiting beliefs and I didn't know them she was you know she, she's not a young woman particularly um, so I think we all grow up with certain limitations um, yeah. and we're not aware of them And NLP gives people the opportunity to see those limitations. And as you've seen in your career, when people can really open up, they can almost, it's almost like a form of alchemy. If somebody wants to be really successful, they need to sort of open up to what's possible. Um, because I think really the, the danger is mediocrity. Right. You know, it's sort of like, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, maybe, but sometimes it's, it's not a huge difference from good enough to great. Exactly, you know, and, and often it's just certain limitations in people's beliefs about what's possible for them, for them, and stuff. Yeah, I'm curious. So, when you started discovering what what NLP could do for you, and you know your own blind spots, perhaps, and your own limiting beliefs, and sort of you know waking up in that sense, um, did you first you know bring in NLP into uh, the way you conduct conducted business? Because I understand that at some point you you actually became a trainer and coach yourself, but that's kind of further down the line. So do yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think I, I mentioned to you earlier, Mickey, that I was very keen on, on the seven habits of highly effective people. So firstly, I got into time management, then I got into the whole thing with Stephen Covey, 
And right. he spoke quite positively about NLP. And then I got into NLP a bit later. But what I found was, um, if I was to make a sort of general rule, is I didn't have a problem of letting go of or delegating. And NLP really helped me. I think the one thing I'd say I found in most business leaders is they want to control things. And that means they don't get the talent in and they, you know, they produce a bottleneck. And I think what NLP and, and, and much of this sort of work did was it enabled me to say, I'm not going to define myself by work. I'm going to define myself by success and achievement. So that means if I do nothing and things are working really well, that's brilliant. And I sort of felt that the less I did, the more successful I became. But most people are driven by a need to work. It's an unconscious need, almost like probably from, from childhood. Be a good boy, be a good girl, do your homework, work hard. And people find it very hard to let go of work. But really, for me, the job of leadership is to make sure that work happens. You know, if you're doing it, it's usually not a good thing. Right, right, absolutely. And I was therefore lucky, I also think, because then you can find people who really like to work. And I later in my career, by the time, you know, there's a bit of a long story, but there was a certain point where I needed around the credit crunch, a really good finance director. And fortunately, this, this guy became available um, and I was able to attract him into the business. And he'd previously worked uh, as a CFO at Grant Thornton, who a British accountancy firm, quite a big one. Um, he'd actually been the CFO of Grant Thornton themselves. So, you know, he had a really big role. So when he first saw my business, he thought it was like a corner shop. You know, it was, a, it was too small of no interest. But once I managed to get him on board and I had the skills to manage him or lead him, it's probably better because he was a leader in his own right. And then once I had that kind of the right team and there was that right sort of freedom and they had shares and so on, you know, the business started to fly. Um, and, yeah, we got institutional funding, which I wouldn't have been able to do probably without that kind of team, without that kind of calibre of team to be able to go into the city of London, go into a large financial institution, be able to, you know, get the kind of big bucks in some ways. You, to do that, you need a reputation. I suppose I didn't have a bad reputation, but, you know, that I could kind of get a team together and produce that kind of coherent business. Um, so I think that's a big a big deal. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm pleased with the achievement, but I'm also in some senses pleased that, that NLP gave me the skills to be able to manage the talent in a way because you can't do it on your own, not not in a large business. It's impossible. Yeah, so so we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what that looks like because I'm curious about, you know, your uh, thoughts on leadership and, and what does it take. Um, before we move there, um, I'm also curious about, you know, the second mountain in your life and how that came about? So the metaphor of the mountain, well, I suppose the first mountain was just yeah. making a living, right? Because yeah. when people start in business, you know, the, the, the whole mission and vision, uh, my original coach told me, she said, my, I had a mission statement. It was this, I've got no money. I need some who can give it to me. That was <laughs> it. Um, you know, and, and in many ways that's true. When you start in business, you need to make money. I mean, you know, you don't need an accountant until you start earning a lot of money. You know, <laughs> right. yeah. you know what I mean? The first thing you need to do is make money. So the first mountain for me, I suppose, ultimately was just making a sufficient amount of money to be able to start employing people. Um, and, you know, that the money was consistent or a consistent income stream. So that took a lot of effort. And I was darting around doing all the different things, you know, jumping from sales to operations to finance and, you know, just trying to keep what was felt like a fairly unsteady ship just floating upward. 
at a certain point doing this, I became more and more stressed. And that's when I suppose I had the first, the second mountain was how do I now transition from being an overworked manager with no leadership competence at all to, you know, kind of that next stage. And I think that was the second mountain for me. Right. So, so there is an element of crisis, right? There where yeah. Yeah, you kind of look yeah. around and it's like, wow, yeah, if I go on like this, where is this leading me? You know, and how am I feeling about myself and my health and, you know, maybe, you know, relationships around me. I don't have time for things that I, I want to have time for. And that's when you face a choice. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. I think there's also kind of a, a kind of point where, where, you know, it's almost there is that decision, isn't there, about that upscaling point. Yeah. If you want to have like three or four staff and you just want to stay at that level, you want to do the work yourself, then fine, do that. But if you want to then move up and start bringing in a board of directors and start having kind of, you know, function heads, um, then you need more money, but you also have to delegate to them. You know, I've often seen entrepreneurs, and I'm sure you've come across this, where I've coached them, where they say, I've got a finance director, an operations director, and a sales director, but they're doing it all themselves. And these people are kind of merely assistants that they promoted who aren't doing any, any different role. So, I mean, to really move up, you know, it's hard. It's hard to let go. But also, as you said, from my health, I don't think once you get beyond about 12 staff or even or 15, say, you can't run it all on your own as the only kind of manager. You just, it begins, the system breaks down a bit like the chimpanzee, you know, the troop. Once it hits about 120, the whole thing falls apart. You have to accept that at a certain size, you know, you either transition or, or shrink. You know, you either, you know, transition. And that transition is dangerous because it requires more overhead, requires trust, you know. I mean, I will right. say that I had to kiss a few frogs before I found my prince. right. I don't right. know if that's, um... it's, it's very interesting, actually, like, how does one decide, you know, do you want to scale up and do you want to build a repeatable business, you know, on a bigger scale uh, or do you want to stay small? And, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting point that you're making that maybe, you know, one of the things like you could say, well, if you stay small, that can be great, right? Like maybe you are at your best, you're using your best skills, you have some good customers but you're going to be very, very busy. Um, so so one, of, one of the interesting elements of scaling up is like you could actually develop um, maybe some middle managers, like other leaders in your team, and you could actually end up building a larger business that makes more money. Perhaps it's even more you know, purpose-driven, and you are actually growing, giving opportunities to others, and thereby, you know, perhaps your life changes and you have more time for things that you want to have time for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a difficult one though, because it costs quite a lot of money. I mean, I would say this, it, finding someone who's good at operations isn't that hard. Find someone who's good at sales is hard. Finding someone who's good at, at finance is super hard. You know, I would say, I'd give advice to somebody. If you want a finance director, think of a salary. And if you double it, you'll be lucky to find someone who's got half a clue. You know, because my, my, my sense is that people who, who have a finance background already can get so much money in the marketplace that for you to get someone who's genuinely talented to become a proper CFO, you know, you're talking proper money. And if you and if you can't afford it, that's also problematic. So that transition is painful because you still have to fill that role or kind of caretake that role. And you're not necessarily going to make more money. You're going to pay so much in salary that there's probably a five-year time when you have to sort of really look at a drop in income 
while you stabilize the business to create that team. But once you do, boom. Okay, yeah, that, that that's an interesting point. I, I wanted to ask you like, so as you were kind of scaling up and, and, and developing a team, as you mentioned, um, you know, the gender question in, in leadership or, or, you know, like staff, um, you know, diversity, did that come up in, in your business? Like in, in terms of, you know, what happens if you have more women in the business? What happens if you don't have women in the business? What happens if you have a certain kind of man in the business? Yeah, no, I think so. I, I don't know if it was so much a gender thing. I mean, you know, there, there was one female and um, three males, me being one of the males. Right. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't think I, 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 I always believed um, from an early point is, is, is to, to, and I believe this also in my trainings, a, a, a kind of great value I attribute to the idea of meritocracy. I don't really care what your race is or your gender or your sexuality. It's just whether you can perform. And I think that also then creates a much more positive culture because otherwise, you know, you, you go to some businesses where entrepreneurs are, let's say, only a, only um, employ certain types of people. Right. You know, the, the funniest story, which I didn't come across that my coach told me about uh, years ago, is she went into a business um, and she was greeted by a kind of fairly short receptionist. And she walked through an open plan office. Everybody there was tiny. And then she walked into the CEO's office who opened it and he was about 5'1". And she was quite short, fortunately. And she got the job as his coach. And the first thing she pointed out to him and said, do you notice that everyone in the building is shorter than you? And he was truly shocked. He had no idea that he'd done this. And apparently within, I don't know, a year or two, you know, all sorts of different heighted people appeared in the business. So, I mean, I think bias is is is, is much more Im Im implicit. It can do with other businesses I've gone to. Everyone's bald. Everyone's got long hair. Everybody's got this. They've got that. You know, it's. I think it's far beyond gender. I, th I think it's, you know, I think gender is, is you know, um, it's, it's, it's just one, you know, one sort of, one sort of point of it. Um, but um, no, I wouldn't have had any problem it being, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter to me. It was just purely a matter of whatever. I think in England as well, there was something around class and whether you'd been to the right university and so on, because in England, we've got this um, kind of class system. So often I found that people who were really talented, who hadn't gone to the, the right universities or something like that, or weren't born, you know, to wealthy families, they weren't given the opportunity, even though they could be really talented. So that was something I wouldn't say it was a bias, but it did seem that that often, you know, that if I look at the team that that joined me, most of them did come from from poor backgrounds. Um, I don't think that was necessarily a bias on my part, but maybe. I mean, I don't know. Uh, good, good, good points. Uh, by the way, there's something like that in the U.S. as well. You know, like you know, Ivy League universities, and you know, have you graduated from the right place? And you know, that that drives a lot of steam. Um, yeah, and I I agree. I think it's not about gender. And you know, one of the things that I noticed, uh, by the way, is that you know, as as I as I worked with hundreds of leaders uh, all over the place, is that you know, sometimes you have a female leader and the female leader has a lot of masculine traits. So, so, so they might from, you know, reasons of survival or, you know, personal experiences perceive that they need to be very, very assertive in order to survive in a very sort of 
uh, masculine culture. And I have seen, you know, men who were very aggressive and then, you know, kind of going through this culture shock of um, me too. And, you know, all, all these questions that, that came up with that. And now they are, they're sort of being, um, very concerned not to come across aggressive or not to be misunderstood and not to be toxic masculine. So, so there, there's a whole level of confusion about, you know, masculinity and femininity and, you know, leadership style. So I know that you have some thoughts around that. What do you yeah, think? How does no, that do. work? Yeah, I mean, so I was I was sharing with you a kind of model I have about this, um, which I'm happy to put up on the screen if you want me to now. Is this a good moment? Or yeah, really? let's do that. Like you know, some of our uh, listeners will not be able to see that, but we'll describe right. it for them. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't have to go through the whole thing, but I mean, the key principle I suppose here is to do with um, archetypes. So rather than getting to gender, getting into archetypes. Now, archetypes, um, as I know you know, Mickey, but you know, for your listeners is this idea of kind of certain innate human energies. Jung was very keen, the, the psychologist Carl Jung on archetypes. And he also talked about anima and animus, uh, which is that sort of masculine quality in a woman or a female quality in a man. So it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to sort of pinpoint it. But I think you're right. Maybe we are living at a moment now, you know, with, um, as you say, with the Me Too movement, uh, and also Black Lives Matter, that people are now much more um, kind of aware of some of the real injustices that have happened from what Jung would have called the shadows, the really cruel and nasty behaviours that have happened in the past, um, which, you know, I find very difficult as well. I mean, if I can share a personal story, when I was at university, uh, there was a, an attractive student who um, I went in to see the, the, the head you know, for a, a seminar just before my exams. It was the second time he cancelled me. And I went in and I said, can you see me for the seminar now? You know, just talk to me a little bit about the exam. And he said, I'm really sorry, Robbie, I'm busy. So I walked out and this attractive female walked in and she said, can I have your help, David? And she said, sure, come into my office in front of me. So, you know, we all suffer from this sort of gender problems. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to say that it's, but it is any type of system where people are shown preference because they're attractive or they're not attractive. Sometimes attractive people, you know, will get attention they don't want. Sometimes attractive people will use that to gain, you know, unfair advantage beyond their competence or capability. And, you know, I felt very strongly that if you were attractive, we weren't attractive, you would be treated the same. You know, and I think that's such an important value. I think it becomes confused. The main point is that why should people be treated differently? It doesn't matter on, on their gender, you know, their, their um, sexuality, their race. You know, people, I think, should, should be treated the same, regardless of what they are. Um, and I think that so often that the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter is very much focused on those shadows, but also on this sort of kind of bias. So what it can do, which I believe you alluded to, Mickey, is this thing where men maybe now are ashamed to, to be assertive or express boundaries, and women maybe feel encouraged to express boundaries, but maybe in a more sort of aggressive way. Um, now, I don't know if that's good. I think that everyone should express boundaries in the same way, you know, clearly, but calmly and gently. If you want to assert something, say, I want this, and this is why. If you start either becoming very kind of weak and fearful about this or you start completely overcooking it 
you're in a shadow. In the order of being in an archetype, it's about being grounded. Now, yes, I can admit there is a sort of female and male style to this, which, you know, might have a sort of tinge of a certain sort of way of doing things. I think that applies also to what I'd call a yin archetype, like being a coach. You know, maybe being a coach of that coaching style of leadership often is more associated with women or women find it easier. But that shouldn't be the case in my view either. I think men also need to learn to be good listeners. I mentioned earlier the finance director I had. He was already a leader. I was mainly his coach. So I was using mainly yin energy with him. He'd come into my office. He'd say, I've got a problem. I'd say, what's the problem? He'd tell me. I'd, he'd say, I'd say to him, what do you think you should do? He'd, he'd, he'd list some things. And I'd say, do you think that's a good idea? He'd say, yes. And I'd say, great. And he'd say, thank you so much. You're such a brilliant manager. I'd say, well, you know, there I am. But do you know what I mean? It's what is appropriate. And that's for me about leadership. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or you have a slightly right. different style. It's a matter of behaving appropriately in the context. Robbie, and so I'm sorry to, uh, to to cut you there, but I'm I'm just very curious about one thing. So you, you're ahead. talking about coaching and listening, you know, being very very important. And so, what is the use for for you? Because in your model, you you differentiate between sort of this yin and yang energy, which is you know one is more you know traditionally considered feminine, and the other is perhaps traditionally considered um, masculine. So, what is the use? Why would we think about listening and coaching skills in terms of uh, more of a yin energy? So if we put that idea there that it's a yin energy, how is that useful, you think? Because I think, I think there's an kind of energetically, I mean, remember, it's not entirely male and female. Remember, you could say it's a masculine and feminine energy, but then you can also register that women also have that masculine energy and men also have that feminine energy. There's right. a whole kind of, Chinese principle of this. It could be sun and moon, could be day and night. It's this idea of complementarity, um, not men and women, because that's confusing. But I think that coaching is, I'd say, is more yin, if you want, a more kind of feminine uh, right. energy, because rather than asserting something, you're sort of holding something. You're just sort of allowing someone else to express themselves, and you're being a listening presence to them, which is kind of different to a more yang energy where you're being assertive or commanding uh, or direct expressing what you want um, and what i'm saying is that for me coaching people who are very talented on the whole with michael i remember you know i was mainly yin i was mainly saying what do you think you should do 98 of the time he just wanted a coach he wanted someone to bounce his ideas off so that he right. could clarify his own thoughts and go off and do them And if I had then, in those same circumstances, dominated him and gone into a yang thing, we would have clashed and he would have resigned. So I think it's a sort of talent management, having that skill. At the same time, um, he could be quite bullheaded. And sometimes he'd say, it's like this. And I would know it was might be like this, but it was a belief. So I remember yeah. once he came into my office, he said, it's like this. And I said, well, I don't, might be, but I, I'm not sure. He said, I know, I'm an accountant. I said, well, you know, you may be an accountant, but you don't know everything. Let's go and speak to a lawyer. So we went down to see a lawyer and asked the lawyer. And the lawyer said, no, you're right, Robbie, he's wrong. And I looked at him. Now, he didn't say, you know, like, oh, you know, well done. I wasn't trying to be competitive. But that was a pivotal, you know, decision on what we were going to do in the business based on that decision. So I didn't necessarily believe everything he said either. And sometimes I would be assertive and say, no, I think that's wrong. I want to do it this way. But most of the time, yin seems better for what I would call 
sophisticated talent management. Right. And that makes, I mean, you know, what, what this reminds me of is if we were looking for kind of a metaphor here, it's almost like, you know, we do know that the brain is, is, is a split brain. So we have a left brain and a right brain, right? And the left brain is more analytical. The right brain is more metaphorical and story-based and non-linear. And so we could just continue ignoring the fact that we have those two And we could just say, well, you know, use your analytical skills in certain contexts or use your storytelling skills in certain other contexts. And they are distinctly sure. different contexts. But wouldn't, wouldn't it be useful to know that there is a left brain or a, you know, a, a, a right brain there? Wouldn't it be useful similarly to, you know, useful to know that there is a yin and yang energy, you know, and, and one is more female-like, uh, feminine, or the other is more masculine. It doesn't necessarily have to do with gender, as we say, but we know that you have those two. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my leadership model is saying, look, some people are going to be more yang in their character and find it easy just to be assertive and express their needs. Other people are going to find it easier to be yin and listen and welcome and all that. And I'm not saying that, that one is better than the other. It's just the context You know, I mean, if you're in certain situations, you're called upon to be the one that you're less comfortable with. And in those especially important moments, I invite people to go into, as you can see on the diagram, the conductor, the kind of meta archetype, the idea of somehow detaching yourself, saying, this is one of those moments, I'm going to do the thing outside of my comfort zone, because it's the right thing to do. And you just sometimes need a few moments to make that decision. But on the whole, I always suggest that leaders just act spontaneously, authentically, they don't need to, you know, wander around with some complex model about yin and yang. It's just sort of every now and again, you're in a situation saying, this is one of those moments I better switch to the one I don't like doing so much, because it'll make a big difference. And it does. So I, I can see, you know, how it does make a big difference. And, and I'm wondering, you know, there's another question that I, I get a lot from people, and I'm, I'm curious, so your, your take on it is that, okay, Robbie or Mickey, you know, I get it. You know, you talk to me about these archetypes, you know, you know, one is, I, I probably have a preferred style. I should be conscious You know, I should know that I have both. I should know which is more comfortable, which is less comfortable, but things happen so fast in life. Like, you know, you're, you're in a meeting or you're on a call, someone says something and you, you got to reply on a fly. So how do you How do you gain that moment of consciousness? How do you how do you make time for being the conductor? Like how do you stop time? Yeah. Okay. It's right? a great question. I mean, look, one, I think you can, you know, it's like a skill. You can develop it by by practicing different types of meditation or some, you know, sometimes people like sports or yoga or whatever. But it's 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 also taking time outside of your business to can kind of learn the skills of mindfulness, if you like. Actually learn it. So you have it at, so you're more mindful when you need it you're not constantly in the emotional kind of associated kind of state right but i think that this authenticity is just saying look every now and again you face a big decision um if i can throw oedipus at you um so oedipus a greek myth is the story of you know a man who um after a rather complex childhood landed up killing his father and marrying his mother So the argument is that it was a bad decision, but he wasn't even aware he was taking it, right? Um, no, it's a good, not a good idea to kill your father. It's not a good idea to marry your mother. But if you don't know, it makes it even more complex. 
So some people are terrified of making decisions because they're so worried about making the wrong ones. Other people, you know, as you say, are just in it and all the time just go for it, go for it. And that's so often the case with business leaders, aren't they? They tend to be more decisive kind of characters. But the point is, using that Oedipus uh, metaphor, is every now and again, there's an emergency, a situation where if you make that wrong decision, you will destroy your business. This is not like a, you know, a bit like COVID comes along and it takes you six months to work out that you should do something different. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's, you if you can't see it, and this is a leadership skill I've called the alarm bell, if you can't notice when you're in a proper crisis. And often that just means noticing that you're in a crisis so that you can take a little time out to think about what to do. Now, all right, as you say, no one's perfect and we'll probably screw things up from time to time. But I like to think that at those key moments, you know, I took a little bit of time out and I was able to make the right decision. Even if I was emotionally overwhelmed at the time, I gave myself a few moments break. does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, yeah, I, think I mean, in other words, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. Day to day, it doesn't matter. Mainly, you can just get on with your life. But every now and again, you've got to say, this is one of those big moments. I need to take a little time out. I need to work out what is the appropriate thing to do. And I think, you know, perfecting that, you try and do it a little bit more often. Yeah, I, I always like to say that, you know, this is true for an individual. And I think it's true for a leadership team. Uh, you know, there, there there never seems to be a good time to stop and say, okay, so let's sit down and make sense of what's happening for us. You know, what what is this crisis that we are experiencing? Where is this heading, and and what can we do? And and I think it's very it's it's fairly dangerous not to take time because you think, well, I'm going to waste all that time. But so often, you know, I I, I hear people, we're going to take four hours to discuss this. What what are we going to do? But you know, how do you make sure that everybody is being heard? How do you make sure that there is a shared sense of the situation? How do you make sure that you know people feel empowered by that meeting? And that's going to take some time, but it's it's probably worth it, right? Well, I mean, look, I mean, I suppose my argument, looking at this model, is this: is that for many people, they don't value leadership at all. They say they do, but they don't. They don't actually do it. You know, so if four hours out of a month is too much for you, well, then you're a manager, you're not a leader. You know, you're only perceiving things of sort of like, we've got to operationally do all this. So, I mean, I think this is a difficulty. Part of your job possibly as a coach is to kind of encourage someone to say, if they're not spending at least some percentage of the year on leadership activities, away days, you know, whatever. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I don't know which mountain this was. It was, I've had more than two, I think, Uh, But by 2010, uh, 2011, um, I, you know, be the teaching, I paid for an external uh, coach to take my team for two days off to a hotel every three to six months, I think it was, you know, and we'd sit there and we'd talk about this. It initially started uh, as a sort of trust building activity where the team coach helped people talk to each other and also talk to me to say when I was, you know, when I was being overpowering, you know, so that they, you know, yeah, that was very successful, the first couple of sessions. But after we'd done it a few times, they became more like board meetings, facilitated board meetings almost. Um, And the finance director, Michael, I mentioned earlier, in about 2011, suddenly came up with a mission statement. 
which I, I don't share. I think I could share it now, actually. Ah, yes, it was retire Robbie, then retire ourselves. So um, <laughs> I rarely share that with anyone. I think I've ever shared, I've, I've ever shared that with anyone. I've always kept it confidential. Um, yeah. But um, but it worked in a way. You know, we did sell the business um, about three, four years ago. So, I mean, you know, from that perspective, I have retired. I sold my business. But I sort of liked the idea of it. It was a mission, but it wasn't a mission I shared with the staff. It was a sort of, you know, that, that wouldn't be very motivational for them. You mean, you, you know, let's all get fired, you know. So I do think there's an interesting idea of this was a sort of internal mission for us. But then there's a sort of, you know, vision, if you like, that could be more shared. Um, you know, I know you know that kind of material, the difference. But this mission, yeah. but when he said it to me, Although I liked it, I also felt a certain vanity, a little sort of jealousy, actually. Thought, you came up with this, I didn't. Right. And then I thought, well, actually, I like it anyway. It's not really my job even to invent it. It sounds very good. If it works, good. And then at a certain point, I suppose they did retire me, and then I did feel obliged to retire them. It's very interesting, but I want to pick up on this one. So you said, you know, the mission statement is, Let's first retire Robbie and then retire ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's great. And so here's a question. You know, often people, when they think about mission statements, and even if it's an internal mission statement, it's only for us, you know, you feel obliged, um, you know, to say something that is going to change the world, the community, you know, something that's bigger than us, something that's, you know, kind of egoless. So, so what do you what do you think about that? You know, because that statement is certainly very focused on yourself. So yes, no, absolutely. I mean, you, and I think that there is this thing. I mean, earlier on, I mean, you know, I would have had a bigger vision thing, but I was, I will, you know, I am, I'll be sixty next year. Um, you know, so you know, from my perspective, the idea of running this sort of large business for the next ten years, I think, would have would have would have finished me off, but. When we talked earlier, the um, you know I talked about that sort of pivotal point, say in two thousand. You know that point, it was you know to build a business that you know or something where, where there was something more to share. But you're familiar about this idea between vision and ambition. It's confusing, isn't it? It's not always that easy. Uh, my accountancy lecturer at university said to me, "The purpose of business is to maximize the satisfaction of its proprietors." Right. And I've always liked that. I mean, you know, you could say stakeholders if you wanted to be a bit more up to date now. But, you know, at the end of the day, a business is there to, to, to satisfy the needs of the people who, who own it or, 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 or sort of, you know, are in it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, no, I, it's, I like that. You know, somebody once told me this idea of selfish philanthropy. So, you know, it's like, a business needs to make money, otherwise it dies. So, to, so there's got to be an element of sort of selfishness. Like, yeah, we need to satisfy our needs because we are running it, and if we're dead, we can't run it. Or, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't make money. It, you know, it, it's going to stop functioning. So, we got to keep it running, and at the same time, we got to get satisfaction out of it on a different level. And perhaps getting satisfaction on a different level may mean that it's a meaningful activity, right? Like we find some meaning in it. Yeah, I think for me as well, I was in the real estate and in property and insurance business. It's not really, it's not like you're in a business where you're helping humanity, particularly. So, as you know, I've got a different business around training and teaching and coaching where that's more a matter of, you know, healing myself and healing the world kind of thing. And I can have a sort of vision, which is kind of more, if you want, appealing for people. 
I also had then something to step into. So well, even though I've retired from that role and I still have some investments and so forth, you know, I have a vision and a mission to continue my, my NLP school business and I can still maintain, continue that. So I think there was something also quite good about having sort of two separate me's, one that had a, a role that didn't retire. So, I mean, I retired myself from that more commercially orientated business. You know, I mean, so so I, I'm not right. saying that applies to everyone, but mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, property businesses are not really the most, you know, we did, I did try to run it ethically and, and, and you know, we, we, we didn't, we didn't have like slums or, yep. you know, we, 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 we weren't, we, we weren't cruel to people or whatever, but, but the business itself, it's, it, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, it's like a finance business. It's kind of quite a tough business, isn't it? I, I was just quite pleased to get out of it really. And, um, and, and, and then sort of continue a different mission where I could, could make a difference in the world. So, so by the way, you know, having said that, I'm, I'm curious what you think about, um, okay, so there are certain businesses that are more inherently, you know, it's easier to, to run it in a purpose-driven way. And as you said, you know, there are other businesses like, you know, it's a, it's a bank, it's, it's, it's an insurance company. It's a little harder. Um, but should, should you believe that there is um, a mission for coaches and, you know, sort of conscious entrepreneurship so, so should all businesses strive to become more conscious and purpose driven, or is yes, it absolutely? I mean, yeah. I mean, when I, I mean, I, I had a property business where we had, you know, quarterly board meetings. We had, you know, uh, quarterly away days. Coaching was given to to senior management. Almost the entire staff became NLP practitioners, but it wasn't required. You know, there was. We, 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 we built on education. People came as apprentices and then qualified and went off and became, I don't know, accountants or uh, property managers or, uh, you know, insurance specialists. So, you know, I also had a vision of trying to sort of build people's careers and so forth. So I think, yeah, you can run a business which is ethical and sort of helps people um, where people feel they belong to something, which is great. Right. Um, so, no, I think I, I, I'm not saying... I, it was that. I'm just saying from my perspective, the business itself, I, I, I mean, look, it, listen to two things. It's more fun being a coach than it is being a bailiff, right? Right. I mean, unless you're, you're very young. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be very young for that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying I was a bailiff, but, but do you know what I mean? I think some businesses are inherently more, you know, for me, more pleasant than others. But I mean, I think it's good to run any business in in this way. And the nice thing about having a kind of business that had a solid financial basis to it um, was one, I got a little bit away from the content of it so I could be kind of on the business rather than in it. As I didn't have a great passion for the product or service itself, you know, then I did move out of the business. Maybe that helped it grow. And maybe because I'm so in the business with NLP and coaching, Maybe that prevents it from growing. It, 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 I, I don't know. These things are complicated, Nikki. I'm not exactly sure. Right. You know, that reminds me of uh, one, one question that I kind of wanted to ask you at the end here is, you know, Jordan Peterson. I, I don't know if you know him. Sure, he's, I know. I know. I know Jordan Peterson. I, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> and he's, you know, he's quite a controversial figure. And I, I don't really want to, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what people think of him. But, you know, one of the interesting things that he says, 
which I don't like. I, I, I actually think that he does bring up some very relevant questions. But one of the things that he says uh, is that leadership is, is, is a pseudoscience. You know, there's no, no science behind leadership, which, which, which is really sort of an interesting proposition. Like, you know, why would you say that? And, and so I'm curious, you know, someone like you, you know, I, I also, you know, teach leadership to people and, and I know you do and you have a model and you've written books about it. So, so how do you think about leadership and, you know, it being a science or not a science? Okay, well, look, I mean, I don't think psychology is a science, to be honest. You know, I mean, as I once said to somebody, if you cut someone open, you're not going to find their superego. Right. It's a kind of Freudian joke there. So, I mean, you know, the idea of, you know, science is something which is measurable in 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 absolute because I have a scientific background. You know, I studied maths at university. I took physics, chemistry, and and maths A level. Um, so, you know, is it as? But the term pseudoscience is a bit offensive. I mean, because Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, and arguably, right. psychology is a pseudoscience. If ever there was a pseudoscience, it is psychology itself. So, I mean, that's definitely that what we'd say is the pot calling the kettle black. Um, but I think my favourite saying about leadership, one of them is from um, a leadership writer, you might know, uh, Peter Senge. Right. And he said, it's the ability to hold conflicting models is a leadership skill, one of the three core leadership skills that he came up with. So that I think leaders are interested in this sort of thing. They learn about all these different models of leadership. Are any of them ultimately true? No. But if it gets you thinking and gets you on that sort of leadership sort of methodology, good. Um, is it essential? I I don't know. I think some people are innately have a sense of what leadership is. I mean, there is some kind of alchemy to it because what's the difference between a manager and a leader? That we know there is a difference. What is it? Right. And, you know, it could be the difference is it's some kind of pseudoscience or it could be some kind of alchemy, but but it certainly exists. You know, people know the difference between a manager and a leader intuitively. Um, and I think that difference is vision. And how do you describe vision? It, 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 it is, yeah, yeah, philosophical. It is a kind of pseudoscience. Philosophy is a sort of pseudoscience, isn't it? And, and you sometimes don't know why it works exactly. Oftentimes people maybe have all sorts of ideas, but the reason they're successful has got nothing to do with those ideas. They just happen to be... <laughs> <laughs> they're lucky and they just love reading these books. I mean, one of the, the jokes I like to share with Vicky is I often wonder if people fall so in love with the whole leadership topic that they read it and they love it and they go on retreats and all the rest of it. Um, and that in itself can become a shadow. You know, I, I often sense that if I went into a room and all my staff were working hard and, you know, really trying to get stuff done, and I said, no, take your face out of the troughs and look up to the sky you know we've got to do leadership if i did that too often they'd resent me and after a while they'd refuse to work they'd say this guy's you know so you've got to do this quite gently and not too often so four hours a month is good four hours a day bad because four hours a day means you got too much on your time and you're not respecting other people who need, still need to actually do work. Right. I, I, I wholly agree. I think, you know, if we kind of come back to the core idea, what I'm hearing is, you know, just just be aware of yourself, be aware of your environment, observe, and, and be able to, you know, stop and think and hold conflicting views 
and grow, right? Because that's growth, right? Like if if I think one way and that's the only way, I, I don't have any idea of my own blind spots because I don't know what I don't know. You know, I'm just going to do the same thing and I'm just going to get the same results. So, so the alchemy, you know, nothing happens if we don't try to do something new or don't try to be more self-aware. The other thing, talking a little bit about your, your mountains, I mean, you know, I managed to sell the business and that wasn't easy either. I mean, God, that wasn't easy. So the, the various mountains to go through. I remember talking about that mission statement. There was a point where I said we had institutional finance and I, I reminded my team, I said, remember that, that it was retire Robbie and retire ourselves, not enrich Robbie and enrich ourselves. That's different. That wasn't our mission. So retire means that I have to actually stop working. So how are we going on that mission? And that really helped us focus on that we really wanted to sell the business. We really needed to find someone else to take it over. Fortunately, I you know I knew someone who sold his business to, to, to a big conglomerate and uh, you know managed to sort of jump on their coattails to some extent. Um, but that wasn't an easy easy thing. Um, but it happened eventually. Thank God. I think it's it's a good lesson, um, you know, not to think in extremes, but you know, perhaps be open to yourself and have that level of honesty. Like, wh what is it that we're really trying to do here? Perhaps, you know, we, we need to sell this business and that's what we're working towards too. Look, yeah, there are stories obviously of people who are kind of billionaires who started their own business and love running it and so on. Depends on probably a bit younger. But I don't know, there's a famous book called The E-Myth. Have you ever read that, The E-Myth? No, no, I have not, no. So, oh, I'd recommend that one. So that's sort of a bit of a sort of small business, how to start up a small business and grow into something bigger. It was a bestseller, and I'm trying to remember the name, Gerber, I think was the author. But he basically said the purpose of business is to sell it. Mm, right. You know, so, I mean, I think that that's not a bad definition. Again, it's not necessarily ethereal in the sense that the purpose of business is, is is to use it as a gateway to create a connection to the divine um but yeah i mean it is, i think that's a reasonable definition you know you 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 the purpose of business is to sell it i mean a successful business is is listed on a stock market it means it's been sold you know now whether you can still run it or not at that level on the whole, founders tend not to be that good at running larger businesses. I mean, we read in the newspapers about three or four people who are really, you know, geniuses at business who obviously could take it from, you know, a startup to, 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 to a huge business. But on the whole, people who have the energy to start a business tend not to be the same people who can move it to that next level. Agreed. That's certainly my experience. Agreed. I think some people believe that, you know, they want to build a business and they want to you know, have their children continue that. And, you know, that may be fine. And other people want to sell the business and that's fine. And I think it all comes down to this idea that you create value, right? You create value for yourselves, the owners of the business and all stakeholders, the people who work there, you know, the people who invest in it. And if you create value, if it's valuable, you can sell it or you could keep it for a while or you could give it to your children, but you got to build value. And you got to let go to build value. It can't just be you. Yeah. And I think that the children thing is also interesting because you have, you know, this famous saying from clogs to clogs in three generations, you know, where there is this anti-script from transactional analysis. On the whole, the children of very wealthy parents tend to squander it. And certainly the next generation, it's certainly usually gone. 
uh, is very rare. I think a number of people have said this to me, especially people who work in like accounting. He said the number of families who've held onto their money for three generations, you know, out of the thousands of clients I've had, I can count on one hand, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is also something interesting about money being a curse. Well, um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to provide for your family, but it's it's another thing to try and sort of hope that that mission can go down through the generations. Sometimes it can. Um, I mean, it's one of the things about aristocracy in Britain, although I, you know, I'm a, I think, you know, I was born in England, but my parents came from Canada. I was very much a first generation person here. I'm not an English aristocrat by any means. Um, but they often have programmed themselves in a way that they are there as a sort of guardian for their lifetime so they can pass it on to the next generation. Now, for many people who are finding it hard to make a living, that seems like a pretty weird way of looking at money. But if you want to retain money for generations, that's probably the right attitude to have. Is you, It's not yours. You're just looking after it for the next, you know, so you can pass it on to the next generation. Now, that's an interesting belief, a different mindset, isn't it? A kind of aristocratic one. Uh, sadly, I didn't have that. But um, anyway, it's too late now. <laughs> Robbie, thank you. I want to thank you for you know being here and sharing this. And yeah. and I, I do like the guardianship because if it, maybe if we thought about the world, you know, it's not ours. We're just here to guard it and and you know hand it over to the next generation. Maybe that would drive somewhat different decisions. On a yeah, basis. absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's you know, and that's the advantage in some senses of 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 yeah, having you know, we all are born into belief systems of our family, um, and that's difficult. If you've got no money, it's difficult to have that that belief system. You know, I was kind of raised relatively poor, so. Okay, thank you so much right. for being here again and sharing your thoughts and well, history. I hope people find it useful. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mickey, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for listening to the show. I hope you had a good time and you come back to us. Please don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to give us a good rating. If you're interested in some individual coaching, check out www.mantorshift.com mentorshift.com and also don't forget to get your mindset map at www mindsetmaps.com says www.mindsetmaps.com thanks again see you soon and hear you soon thanks again and i hope to connect with you virtually pretty soon again bye for now